idolatry, there is not a sin that God hates more. Idolatry, there is not a sin that we are more prone to. That's why this shows up in the first and second commandments that God gives to us. The testimony of Scripture is that there is not a sin that God could hate more than idolatry, and there seems to not be a sin that you and I as human beings are more prone to than idolatry. And so, as the greatest Bible commentator of all times noted, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. And then he wrote, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. And so we'll see at the very beginning of our text today, Paul says to the Corinthians and he says to us that we should flee from idolatry. To not entertain idolatry, to not merely resist idolatry, but to run from idolatry, to flee from idolatry. And then more specifically, we learn in the text today a reason why we should flee from idolatry. And there might be many reasons, and there are many reasons that the Bible tells us, but the reason in our text today that we should flee from idolatry. The reason that idolatry is as dangerous as it is is because it provokes God's jealousy. Idolatry, something that we may not be as familiar with as generations that have gone before us and even God's jealousy Another biblical reality that we may not be as familiar with as others before us, but it's clear as we read the Bible that every single mention of God's jealousy is in response to people's idolatry. God's jealousy, what that is, and we'll have to think about that and learn about that today, is always how God responds to idolatry, including in our text today. So we'll think about that together. And if we're going to think about that, we will need God's help. I don't have enough on my own, and you don't have enough on your own to really grasp this truth, let alone to apply this truth to our lives. So let's go to God in prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, as you know God and as you have said and as we have proved, we need your help. And we need your help 
in this room together right now to understand your word. I think especially this word that is not as simply understood as other texts in your word. And so we are crying out to you as your people. We are asking you to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can know in our minds and hearts what you would have us know in our minds and hearts today. And we pray that that truth would change us. That it would cause us to love you more deeply and to trust you more fully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 900. In our section, it begins with this sentence in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That is, run from idolatry. The previous verse, verse 13, stated that with every temptation, God provides a way of escape. So, escape from idolatry. Don't just avoid it. Don't just resist it. Retreat from it. In the same way, Joseph took flight from the clutches of Potiphar's adulterous wife. Flee from idolatry. If you're not sure what idolatry is, here is a very basic definition. The 95th question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is idolatry? And here's its answer. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed Himself in the Word. Let me read that one more time. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed Himself in the Word. That means that people like you and me, that people commit adultery whenever they take something either real or imaginative and put it before God. That's when idolatry is taking place. When I put something, whether real or something I've made up in my mind, and I put it before God or even beside God, like on the same level with God. That is idolatry. When you see that, whether within or without, whether in your own heart or before your eyes, run, is what Paul is saying. Flee from idolatry. Now, if you peek down at verse 19, you'll see a phrase that gives us the context of the Corinthians' idolatry, and it's food offered to idols. So for those of you who've been paying very close attention and reading this letter, that signals to you that Paul is returning to a topic that he introduced back in chapter 8. 
verse 1, where he wrote, Now concerning food offered to idols. Here's the background of this issue. The Corinthians had written Paul a letter. We don't have a copy of that letter. But the Corinthians had written him a letter, and in that letter they asked him questions. And apparently one of their questions was regarding food offered to idols. They explained to him the situation, namely that Corinth was home to many idol temples, and Corinthian Christians, therefore, they had opportunity to attend temple feasts that were held in those temples, or they had opportunity to buy leftover meat from idol sacrifices and ceremonies. And while those practices were totally normal, they were culturally normative in Corinth, some Christians, they just weren't sure about it. Is that okay to attempt to attend those feasts at the temple? Even if it's just a social thing in our culture, is it okay to, to buy the meat that is left over from those sacrifices and maybe eat it? Consume it in our own home. So Paul writes back. And as Paul writes back, he sees two problems. And the first he discussed in chapters 8 through 9. If you've been with us, we've looked at those. It was regarding believers who were not being considerate of other believers. And they were causing some to stumble in their Christian walk through buying and eating some of the temple meat. The second problem is what Paul is addressing here in chapter 10. The second problem is regarding believers who were attending the idolatrous temple feasts. And Paul's very basic instruction is, and these are my words, don't do that. This is basic instruction here regarding whether or not the Christians could or should attend those feasts that were held in these idol temples. Don't do that. Paul's words, flee, stay away, flee from idolatry. And now in the following verses, verses 15 through 22, Paul is going to make his argument of why they should avoid these feasts, why they should flee from that idolatry. Now first, he appeals to his readers' wisdom, which the Corinthians arrogantly felt they had much of. Verse 15, I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And you all have to do the very same thing this morning. As I speak to you, you have to judge what I say. And the way you judge what I say, or the way you judge any preacher, is by holding up what they say up and against God's Word. Does it match? Does it line up? It's very irresponsible to take a preacher's word for it. A Christian should know and open up God's Word. It's one of the reasons I always encourage you to have your Bible open. I mean, some of you, I could say anything up here. You might even nod your head and say, Amen. If you're not opening the Bible and looking to see whether or not these things are true, you're being irresponsible, naive as a Christian. So you've got to judge what I say. Now, sometimes that's pretty easy and sometimes it's difficult. 
Sometimes it's very plain. Today, and you might have heard this in my prayer, at least in my opinion, that is going to be hard. It is going to be hard to judge these words because this text, it is not as plain as most other texts in your Bible. And for a culture like ours that is so far removed from first century Corinth, this is going to require some really deep thinking. So to help with that, I'm going to point out a structure that, that I see in these verses that I think helps to follow Paul's argument. His inspired comments can be organized under three headings. So let me give you those three headings. The table of the Lord, the table of Israel, and the table of demons, or the Lord's meal, and Israel's meal, and the demon's meal. You can see the table of the Lord will be in verse 16 and 17. The table of Israel is approached in verse 18. And then the table of demons in verses 19 through 20. Let me take it a step further. Because this is a tough text, I want to even at the very beginning take it to another level and tell you that each of these meals has something in common. And that's what Paul is pointing out. Each of these meals, each of these tables has something in common, and their common thread, that is the ground of Paul's argument. So here's what they have in common. I mean, you're getting the whole sermon in the first 10 minutes. At the table of the Lord, there's fellowship with Christ. At the table of Israel, there was fellowship with God. At the table of demons, there is fellowship with demons. At each table, there is a host and there is a guest. Imagine your table at your home. Imagine extending hospitality to someone else or a family. You are the host and they are your guests and you gather around the table. At each of these tables... There is a host and a guest. At each table, there is a host who has extended an invitation to fellowship and communion. And at each table, there is a guest who has accepted that invitation. That is the common thread. I want to show you that in these verses. And then we'll see that that forms the basis of Paul's argument. So with all that said, I think we're ready to to do verse 15, to judge for ourselves what Paul says. So let's begin with the table of the Lord in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the cup and the bread. This is referring to the table of the Lord or the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday here following every sermon. We are following the model that Jesus set for us in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. 
The Corinthians also celebrated the Lord's Supper, though they seemingly practiced it very different from the way we do. We know that from historical theology. As best we can tell, they likely sat down and they shared a meal together. They shared a meal together which culminated with the sharing of a cup of wine and the sharing of a loaf of bread. And Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless. So before passing the cup of wine in their context, the pastor would have blessed it, which means that he would have prayed and he would have thanked God for what the cup represented. The shed blood of Christ by which our sins are forgiven. The cup of blessing that we bless. And here's the point Paul is driving home. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He then goes on to say the same about the partaking of bread. The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ. The Greek word here that is translated participation is kononia. And it means close, intimate relationship. So whatever you think of, when you think of participation, or we'll see in the words to come, or participant, have in mind close, intimate relationship. So that word, depending on the context, it can also be translated as fellowship or sharing or partnership or communion. This is why we often call the Lord's Supper communion. Because that title, communion, it gets to the heart of what is actually happening at the Lord's table. Namely, communion with Christ, fellowship with Christ, close, intimate relationship with Christ, and also communion with his body. Christ is the head, his people are the body, they cannot be separated. Communion with Christ and communion with his body or his people, that is Paul's point in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So their custom, we gather, was to take a loaf of bread and then to tear individual pieces from that loaf of bread to symbolize that they were intimately connected, not only to Christ, but because of their connection to Christ, also intimately connected to one another as they together made up the very body of Christ. And so historically, the Lord's table, it is practiced, depending on what faithful church you go to throughout history or today, the Lord's table is practiced in such a way that people capture what they're supposed to capture, see and visualize, and there's an image of what it's supposed to represent, and that is our communion as Christians our communion with Christ, and our communion with one another. It captures that, and then we actually do that. We do commune with Christ, and He communes with us, and we do commune with one another. 
You know how we do that here at Veritas. We've made decisions of how to do that, how we feel best communicate what's actually taking place. And that is that we are communing with Jesus and one another. It's not an individual thing. It's not just a you thing. It's not just a me and Jesus time. There's an element of that in communion. But it is at the heart. It is fellowship with Christ together and with one another. Here's what the framers of the 1689 Confession wrote regarding the Lord's Supper. This is from chapter 30, paragraph 1. The supper or table of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself and his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe Him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and with each other. And one of the texts that they cite is in our text today. These two verses, 16 and 17. Now there is much more to communion. And Paul will say more in the next chapter. But his relevant point in this argument, his relevant point has been made. At the table of the Lord, there is fellowship with Christ. At the table of the Lord, there is a host. And the host is the Lord Jesus himself. At the table of the Lord, we are his guest. And we are invited into fellowship. And to communion with him and with his body. Let's move on to the next table. Which Paul only mentions briefly. So we won't spend a lot of time here, but this is the table of Israel. There's a common thread you'll see. We've considered the table of the Lord. Now verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? I believe this is referring to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They would be made by the priests on an altar, which was a table. Those sacrifices would be made on that altar, and they would be made on behalf of Israel. And remember, these sacrifices would be made, that blood would be shed, so that sinful Israel could remain in a degree of fellowship with God. So he points out this table of Israel, table of the Lord and the table of Israel. That is two very weighty meals. Those are the two most significant meals, the most significant tables in the Bible. The table of Israel where lambs were slain 
so that Israel could fellowship with God and the table of the Lord where the Lamb of God was slain so that sinners could fellowship with Christ and one another. So at the table of Israel, there is fellowship, excuse me, there was fellowship with God. At the table of Israel, there was a host, God. And the priests who were representatives of Israel were his guests. And they were invited into fellowship and communion with God. At this point, Paul anticipates a question with verse 19. Look at verse 19. He's anticipating a question and he writes, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Now, Paul asks that question. Paul writes that because it, it sounds like, and he knows this, as he's writing to the Corinthians, it sounds like he is moving in the direction of condemning attendance at these idol feasts. I mean, they can gather that already as they're reading his letter, that we're not supposed to be attending these feasts. So as they hear him moving in this direction, they would be holding on to something that Paul had already written in this letter back in chapter 8 that was actually making them feel like it was okay and no big deal to attend those feasts. So this is what he said back in chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. He wrote, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, so there he wasn't talking about attending the feast at the temple. He was talking about buying the leftover meat and taking it somewhere else or to your home to eat. And there he said that as to the eating of the food, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what would be going on in the Corinthians' mind is, is Paul contradicting himself? It seems that he's about to tell us that we should not attend these feasts, but hasn't he already told us, but, but these feasts that are to these idols, these idols aren't even real. These idols are just made up. I mean, that was the reason why it was okay to eat the meat that was left over from the sacrifice. So why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we attend these idol feasts? And so here's Paul's full answer. He's not contradicting himself. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No, he says, I'm not. He's not contradicting himself. Verse 20, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to, he doesn't say idols, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be, and here's that same fellowship word, I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul maintains idols are not real, but demons are. 
Idols are not real. That is not, he's saying, that is not my argument why you should not attend these feasts. Idols are real. No, they're not. Same thing I said back in chapter 8. They're just so-called gods. But there is something or someone's behind those idols. It's demonic. Which brings us now to the third table. The table of demons. This is in verses 19 and 20. Here's verse 20 again. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So that word, I said it a moment ago, that word participants, it is the same it is a form of the same word used in verse 18 in regards to the table of Israel and in verse 16 and 17 in regards to the table of the Lord. So that's what these three tables have in common. This word for fellowship, participation, communion is, is taking place at all three of these tables. The meals in these idol temples would not be in form. They would not be much different than a meal amongst the church at the Lord's table. Those meals would look outwardly very similar. Very similar celebrations. There'd be food. They'd sit around a table. There would be drink. There would be celebration. And each meal actually would culminate with the raising of a cup. There were probably several cups. But each of those meals, whether it was in the church or whether it was in the idol's temple, they would culminate with the raising of a glass in honor of the host. To show appreciation and honor or glory to the host. What is Paul saying to the Corinthians who is the host behind the feasts in the idol temples? Demons. Paul says, demons. Idols are not real, but demons are. False gods. There are many false gods. False gods are not real. But Satan is. Paul is not concerned with the Corinthians attending these feasts and being participants with idols, but with demons. And so now verse 21, he gives his, he's made the argument, so he gives his formal exhortation in verse 21. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is inconsistent. These meals mean something. These meals memorialize something. They represent something. They signal something. So you can't on Sunday go to the table of the Lord and then on Wednesday meet your buddies and go to the table of demons. But they didn't call it the table of demons. It was an idol feast. It was a party. 
It was a get-together. It was fellowship. It was communion, just with one another. And Paul's point is, no, it's a table of demons. There's a demonic host. And flee, Paul is saying, from that idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Christians are prone to this. We want things from God and we want things from the world. We want to trust God and we want to trust the world. We want to love God and we want to love things in the world as much as we love God. And you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You cannot, in this context, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You you cannot have it both ways. It is one or the other. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot pull your seat up to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ and then pull yourself up to the table of demons. They are incompatible. Samuel Lewis Johnson He brings this all together. The Jews who, sacrificing their offerings, put themselves under the influence of Jehovah, and the Christians sitting around the Lord's table by partaking of the Lord's table put themselves, that is in the eyes of people, under the influence of the Lord God. So if we sat around a heathen table and ate meats, sacrificed to a heathen idol, were we not committing ourselves to them? It raised the question of consistency. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, what are you saying, Paul? He is saying, when you attend these feasts, you are attending a table of demons. There is a host. And it's demonic. And it is inviting you into communion and fellowship. It is a rival meal to the Lord's Supper. It is a rival table to the Lord's table. It is idolatry. Flee from it. As I prepared this sermon this past week, there were two different occasions where I prayed and stared into this text for literally hours. I mean, if you were to swing by the church and look in this office door and see me, And then leave for a couple hours and come back and see me. You'd probably wonder whether or not I was okay. Just staring at the same book open to the same page with an empty piece of paper in front of them. The first occasion 
was after asking myself the question, what is the meaning of this text? That's the first question a preacher or pastor always has to ask himself. It's the first question that you have to ask yourself whenever you're reading the Bible is what is the meaning of this text? And then the next question is what is the application of this text? So what? What does this text mean for me? How do I apply this text? And those were the two questions that really stumped me this week. I mean, I don't know if you're probably smarter than I am, but when we were reading that text, I assume some of you were thinking, good night, what is this talking about? So once I figured that out, after just staring and staring and staring, I have to resist the urge and temptation in those hours to go open up my commentaries, right? To go to the, the guys with more degrees and, and more experience and, and longer faithfulness and more training who have read and labored and studied also with the Holy Spirit. It's a shortcut, but you've got to turn your eyes off to that. It's got to just be me, just like with you. It's got to be me and the Holy Spirit and God's Word. See, now that's always a tough deal. Sometimes it can take 30 minutes, 45 minutes. We're talking hours. What does this mean? Then the second question was even longer. What is the application of this text, God? How does this apply to me? I mean, the very practical, you heard it, the very very practical application for the Corinthians was, hey, stop attending those idol feasts. That is his clear, practical application. But I'm guessing for most of you, it has been quite a while since you attended an idol feast. And that's why I'm staring into this text for so long, saying, okay, what, how, does this, how does this work? It's a very different culture. We don't express things the same way that they do. We don't have the same kinds of activities or sources of entertainment. I mean, it's just totally different, right? As far as I know, I've never attended an idol feast in a pagan temple, which is good, by the way. Praise God. And if you ever have opportunity, don't. So how do we apply this text? We don't have the same idol feasts in the same idol temples. But don't we have our own opportunities to fellowship with man-made deities inspired by demons? Do we? Don't we in our culture have opportunity? Should we take it? We should be careful not to. To fellowship with, to commune with, to partner with man-made Idols, deities, inspired by demons. I mean, this text should keep you out of a Mormon meeting house. I think that's a practical application. Maybe something that you've never considered or maybe ever will have the opportunity to even consider, but that would be an application. It should keep you away from a spiritual drum circle 
It should keep you out of a Christian science reading room. It should keep you out of a church that is peddling the prosperity gospel. It should keep you out of a Christian church that is a Christian church in name only and when examined is not a true church but is a false church. It may even make you think twice about attending a Roman Catholic Mass. What is behind these meals and services and what is the goal of the invitation? Is there more to take from this text? I think that is some direct and practical application, but is there more? Well, I think there is, and I found it meditating on the very last verse that we're studying. Here the application is widened. In verse 22, Paul states his ultimate reason why the Corinthians should avoid these idol feasts and why Christians should flee idolatry. I mean, here's his ultimate reason, verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Those are rhetorical questions. We should know the answer to those. We should not provoke the Lord to jealousy. To provoke God to jealousy, we'll get into this a bit, but to provoke the Lord's jealousy is to provoke His anger. So if you're ready to, you see how the questions fit together? So if you're ready to provoke God's anger, let's say your answer to that first question is no biggie. Sure, we could provoke God to jealousy. The next question, are you stronger than He? Do you really want to provoke God to jealousy? You think you could take him? Think you go toe to toe? You think you stand a chance? Think he'll look the other way? Think you'll be able to reason your way, logic your way out of it? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? When they would attend those feasts, he's opening their eyes. Provoking God to jealousy. What do you think? Are you stronger than God? Whether intentional or unintentional. Participation in anything that draws you into communion with anything that would supplant God provokes God to jealousy. Whether intentional or not. To put yourself in a position where you may be in communion with anything that would seek to supplant God, that provokes God to jealousy, which means, by the way, that there's such a thing as good jealousy. God is good, God is righteous, God is light in Him. There is no sin. When we hear the word jealousy, we typically think something bad. That it's a wrong emotion, something that leads to sin. Well, at its core, let's think about what jealousy is. At its core, jealousy is a strong feeling of possessiveness. Strong feeling of possessiveness. Mine. Mine. 
There's a difference between being jealous of something or someone. That's a bad jealousy. And being jealous for something or someone. That's a good jealousy. Jealousy of or jealousy for. So to feel jealousy of something or someone is to feel jealousy towards something or someone that does not belong to you. You're jealous of something or someone negatively. That is toward something or someone that does not belong to you. That is inappropriate. That is wrong. And it leads to even more sin. But to feel jealousy for something or someone is to feel jealousy, a strong feeling of possessiveness towards something or someone that belongs only to you. Christian, you belong to God. Christian, you are the possession of the God of the universe. No one else has possession of you. Nothing else can claim ownership of you. You belong to God and God alone. And God is not interested in sharing you. I am my beloved and He is mine. God is not interested in sharing you and He will 